a light bulb moment into who he really is. It's like, boom, here it is. I was, I was wondering, it wasn't clear, and now it is clear. You see, in Luke's gospel, he's been developing a couple of plot lines, a couple of storylines, Jesus' mission and his identity. And last week, Pastor Casey unpacked Jesus' mission to seek and to save the lost, captured very succinctly in Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This week, we see that with respect to his identity, a light bulb moment there. Because, you know, sometimes Jesus seems to conceal his identity, and other times he seems to reveal it plainly. So in, in Luke 4, Jesus casts out some demons, and they start to tell people who he is, and he tells them to knock it off and be quiet. And then a couple of chapters later, in, in Luke 8, Jesus raises some people from the dead, or a girl from the dead. And then he says, hey, don't tell anybody what happened. He's concealing his identity for a little while. But he's also revealing his identity as he goes on performing more miracles, delivering more sermons. And in chapter 9, we sort of get this, this clue, a window into the whole of Luke's gospel in seeing how Jesus' identity will be revealed. Look up on the screen here, Luke 9, 51. We see, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That may not seem significant to you on the surface, but from Luke 9 to where we are today in Luke 19, 10, 11 chapters, is Jesus making his way to Jerusalem for this triumphal entry, this light bulb moment. It's been crescendoing to hear, say, boom, here's who Jesus is. Here's his identity. So we set all of that up as the background to seeing what is this identity of Jesus, and we'll break the outline down into three points this morning, that King Jesus is overall number one, number two, King Jesus is gentle to all, and number three, King Jesus deserves praise from all. King Jesus overall, gentle to all, deserves praise from all. Let's start with the first one, King Jesus is over all. This is who King Jesus is. Look back at your copy of the scriptures with me in Luke chapter 19. I'll be reading in verses 28 and 29. Here's what we read in Luke's gospel. And when he'd said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Right off the bat, you see him getting to Jerusalem. What I, what I started to explain there is this is part of revealing his identity. And there's kind of a, a theological, who is Jesus part to this. But there's a historical reality that needs to be acknowledged as well. You see, Luke is writing as a historian. He's writing real events with accuracy and telling us how they took place. And when we, we check in on the accuracy of what he wrote, it reminds us and encourages us that we can trust the Bible as an accurate source of what has really happened in the world and how God is working to save his people. You see, Luke records over 40 people, over 30 different countries, over 50 different cities, and nine different islands that have all been verified by historians. Even embedded in this tiny little segment here, you read in verse 28, he was going up to Jerusalem. 
Now that seems like kind of not a big deal. He was going up to Jerusalem. Well, if I can just zoom in for a second on that, in the beginning of Luke 19, where Pastor Casey talked last week, verse 1, we see he's in Jericho, and by Luke 19, 28, he's going up to Jerusalem. Doesn't seem like a big deal. That's a 17-mile journey that it kind of takes place here in Luke 19, and over those 17 miles, the elevation increases by over 3,000 feet. Eh, going up to Jerusalem. Like, that, that's about a 4% incline, right? So you think about hopping on the treadmill for 17 miles, putting that sucker up at a 4% incline? That is a recipe for your hip flexors to be sore in the morning. <laughs> You're gonna be hurting, and Luke just kind of tosses it in there. Oh yeah, going up to Jerusalem. Right, it's, it's a reminder here that you can trust the Bible. And these things that he writes are true. You can rely on them. Historian Otto Piper would say it this way. See, wherever modern scholarship has been able to check up on the accuracy of Luke's work, the judgment has been unanimous. He's one of the finest and ablest historians in the ancient world. So in addition to the historical value, there's a key part here about Jesus' identity that we need to see. So let's go back to Luke 19, pick up where I left off in verse 30 now. Jesus sends those disciples ahead, saying, verse 30, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and, and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So, so maybe you read that like me and you're kind of wondering like, like what's the deal with this colt donkey thing? They just walk up and like, take it? Like, does that not strike you a little bit odd on the surface? And I mean, we could speculate a bit there like, did Jesus prearrange something? Did he send a messenger ahead to tell them? Did he use his omniscience to know that maybe this was a, a believing family that were his disciples? And so if they knew the Lord had need of it, they would just gladly give whatever was needed? We don't really know. We could speculate. But we also wonder, at least I do when I read that, it says the Lord has need of it. I wonder, what does it mean that Jesus needed it? He's God. He doesn't need things like I need things. He's not needing it out of a lack of something, like I would lack something. No, Acts 17 states it pretty succinctly, verses 24 and 25, we read, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what does it mean that Jesus needed it, right? I, I wonder that question. And what it means that he needed is he needed it because he was the promised king of Israel, and this donkey was needed to fulfill the scriptures that had already been written about him. Now, I, I read this verse at the call to worship from Zechariah 9, but let's put it back up on the screen here and see it again. Here's what was written hundreds of years prior. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So Jesus needed it, not in the sense that I need food or water or you guys do, but that there was the prophecy to be fulfilled and his mission was to reveal his identity through fulfilling the prophecy that I am the long-awaited king. Ever since King David, you've been looking for him and I'm him. And what this means then is King Jesus is king over all as the long-awaited king. Everything, absolutely everything is under his authority. It's under his domain. It's under his rulership. It's part of his kingdom, even a measly donkey. Now, look back at verse 31 for just a moment here, because this is kind of a, uh, a unique thing to see. Jesus says, the Lord has need of it. He refers to himself as the Lord. And this is actually the first time in the entire Gospel of Luke that Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. So it's been building crescendo. And here for the first time, he says, I'm the Lord. The, the English word sort of flattens the meaning a bit there. The, the original word has kind of a twofold part. It means a deity and someone with lordship, dominion, rulership, reigning over everything. And so in that, Jesus is saying, I am God and I am Lord over all. I have dominion, rulership, ownership over everything. This term for Lord, kurios in the Greek, is the third most common noun in the New Testament. It shows up all over the place saying who Jesus is. And yet, yet, he waits till chapter 19 to apply it to himself. Light bulb. This is who I am, don't miss it. I'm king over all. Abraham Kuyper summed it up well. Listen to what he said. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. There's simply no area that he's not over. Might be as simple as a donkey or as simple as your Sunday afternoon. Might be something as near and dear to you as your personality or something you've recently discovered in the last two years, like Zoom. He's over all of it. It's all his, and it's all been entrusted to you so that you could use it for his glory. Think about it this way. There's no area of my house that Emily and I are not over. But what we did, we had a guest room that uh, the girls wanted to use for a playroom, so we built one of those Murphy beds. Right, it stands up on the wall and it can kind of fold down when it's needed and then we put it back up so they can play in it when nobody's there. But imagine what would happen if we had out-of-town guests come in, say, girls, are going to clean up your dolls, your horses, all this stuff. We're going to put the bed down so they can stay there. And they said, oh, no, 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 that's our, that's our playroom. Like, no, that's not your dominion. You don't have lordship over that. I'm over that. I get to decide how that's used. And yes, I want you to enjoy it. It's a gift for you. Have fun with it, but recognize it doesn't belong to you. I'm still over that. That's a bit like how Jesus' kingship and lordship over this earth is in everything that we own. Right? Here's the question for us then that we need to ponder this morning. What has God entrusted to you that you've latched onto and won't submit to him? See, obviously he doesn't need it. He's God. He's got everything. But your refusal to hand it over to him shows it's become an idol in your life. It's become your precious. 
Gollum would say, and you have to have it. Right, a lot of times you come to something like to say, what do you have that you haven't given over to God? And it's easy to apply that to money, but I know that there are tons of people here that are incredibly generous. Been, hearts have been gripped by grace, and you've been in turn generous with your finances and say, man, I can give. God has that part of my life. But man, when it comes to forgiveness, I'm called to seek reconciliation with that brother or that sister, man, that's mine. I want to protect that part. I don't want to go back there. It hurts too much. Maybe you say, no, just not. I can forgive people, but I want Sunday to be my day. That's the part of my life that I hold on to. I mean, maybe I'll come if it's convenient. But if I do, it's going to be mostly as a consumer, right? Where I'm just kind of, what can the church do for me? Not as President Kennedy would say, what can I do for my church? Right, we would come saying, what can this do for me? Instead of how can I serve and participate and be part of Jesus' mission here? I wonder if we don't see our phones this way a little bit. It's our own little spot. This is my domain. This is my area, right? The messages I type, the images I look at, the people I creep on on social media. Like, it feels like it's your little area that nobody else gets into. And Jesus is saying, there's no area of your life that I don't have dominion over. That's mine. Have you submitted that part of your life to him? Boy, look out, there's, there's people here in the room that have incredible people skills. Like, I hope in a godly way that I'm jealous of you. Like, like your ability to make new friends and bring people in, have a genuine interest in their life is absolutely incredible to me. And it's, it's right that you would use that gifting to make friends and for professional networking. But do you also use that gifting for King Jesus to introduce other people to him, to bring them to church with you, or to invite them to do a Bible study with you? Or do you say, no, no, that, that, that's, that's my gift, that's my domain, I get to use that for me, that's not Jesus's. There's all kinds of our lives that we need to consider and say, have I submitted everything to King Jesus? Because he is over all. That's the first point, King Jesus is over all. The second point, though, is a bit of a contrast, or at least it might seem that way, and it says that King Jesus is gentle to all. King Jesus is gentle to all. So look back at verses 35 and 36 of Luke 19. Like I said, I'll pick up in verse 35. Here's what we read. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. You see, throwing cloaks onto the road was a kind of a symbolic gesture to say, we see that you are royalty. So that even the animal you're riding won't have to touch the dirt. It can ride on our cloak. So there's a recurrence of saying, yes, you are the king. The other gospels would note that there were palm branches placed down on the road as well. That was a, a symbol of, at that time of kind of a nationalistic Israeli uh, political uprising that they were hoping would, would take place. A national deliverance, you might say. 
In fact, if you go back into Israelite history, uh, during the time of the Maccabeans, if you want to nerd out on that a little bit, there were actually palm branches placed down for political uprisings. And so in essence, what many of these people may have been saying was, hey, we hope that the true king has arrived to bring true political deliverance. It didn't work last time, but maybe we've got the right guy, the, the one that Zechariah 9 talked about, and he can really get us out of here. But there's a quick plot twist that comes after that, because instead of coming in on a, a white war horse, way up above everybody, saying, yeah, I'm dominant over all of you, he comes in on a baby donkey. Right? The, the transport communicates significance, whether it be a, a presidential motor, motorcade or pop culture icons coming in, their transportation is meant to say, I'm high and above you, and I am totally inaccessible to you little peons. Don't come near me. And yet Jesus comes in on a baby donkey. You piece together what all the different accounts say, and it's possible even that he's on this donkey and his heels are kind of scraping the ground because it's so low. And so as he walks into Jerusalem, yes, he's the king, but you expect him to be high and above and unlike anything, and yet he's saying, I'm gentle, I'm accessible to you. It's a striking contrast from what would have been expected of a king. Dane Ortland helps us to see this contrast helpfully. Listen to what he said. The disciples wanted liberation, but they were short-sighted. They wanted liberation from their circumstances of Roman occupation, pagan overlords, Israel's internationally undervalued reputation. But Jesus had come truly to liberate them. He'd come to liberate them from their sins. He'd come to liberate, uh, come to free them, not from others, but from themselves. Not from the overlords of Rome, but from the overlords of sin. Do you start to, to see this contrast? Jesus comes with power and with authority, and if he wanted, he could demand and coerce your sacrifices. But he doesn't do that. Quite shockingly, actually, he humbles himself. He lowers himself, and he woos your affection through his tenderness. This is actually what was said about him in many of the prophets. Uh, Isaiah 40 gives us a really clear picture of this kind of contrast. See it on, on the screen. We read verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. King Jesus over all. But also, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you hear that layered together there? You see it in Isaiah prophesied and in Luke in narrative form, the exact same truth listed and described for us. See, what's been happening is Luke, throughout his gospel, has been telling us all kinds of things about Jesus and now he's getting to the core, to the heart of who Jesus really is. I think about it this way. I could, I could tell you all kinds of things about my wife, Emily. I could tell you she's, she's six feet tall. She has beautiful curly brown hair. She was an amazing volleyball player. She's an Enneagram six. 
She's a gifted writer. I can say all these things about her, but I've not actually told you who she is, right? All of these things are, are, well, not kind of true. They're definitely true of her, but they're not getting to the core of who she is. And what, what Luke is doing, he says, as Jesus rides in on the donkey, here's who he really is, King Jesus, who's gentle to all. Here's who his heart is. Matthew 11, Jesus would speak to this and tell us exactly what his heart is. He would say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Catch it here. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is what my heart is. This is all of you who labor Everybody who's trying to crowbar their way into happiness. You get the crowbar, I'm going to pry this and I'm going to get to happiness. <laughs> You're living your life on a hamster wheel in pursuit of joy and it's exhausting. And the faster you run, the more you get nowhere. It's like you're in a parking garage. You forget what, you know, what, what level you parked on and the elevator was full, so you take the stairs. You're taking them two at a time, sprinting your way up, hoping the next, the next level is where your car is parked. And each time it's not there, and so you have to go another one and another one, two at a time. And you're like, this is exhausting. I'm working hard, getting nowhere. I can't find the joy that I'm after. I labor and I'm heavy laden, and I can't find the rest that I want. Guys, you, you can sprint for that joy and that happiness through materialism, through anything this world affords. You can also sprint for it through religious performance and hoping that you can fool a few people on Sunday to think that you're a, a decent, upstanding citizen. You could chase that in both ways and avoid Jesus by both of them. And he says to you, whether you're avoiding him through the world or avoiding him through religion, come to me. I'm the only one that satisfies. This morning, I invite you, collapse into the arms of Jesus. I don't have to stay on this hamster wheel. I don't have to sprint up another set of stairs. The treadmill is too fast for me. The old hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, perfectly complete. But it's not just those who labor that Jesus speaks to. It's also those who are heavy laden. You're weighed down by, by sin or, or perhaps something outside your control. Maybe you feel defeated by sin. You think that Jesus is disgusted by you or he's given up on you. He looks at you and says, who are you? I don't want anything to do with you. And you, you, you feel that way and you look at me and say, Justin, how could I rest in Jesus? He wants nothing to do with me. Friend, let me remind you, he delights to show mercy. He doesn't do it because it's his job description and he has to do it before 5 p.m. before he goes home to check the box, not merely to fulfill the scripture. No, he loves to show mercy. You squeeze his heart, mercy oozes out. He's filled with mercy and wants to show more. His delight is in those who will confess their need. Come to him, 
Friend, let me remind you, if you feel like you can't come to Christ for mercy because you are so weighed down by sin, let me remind you, it was always and only about his performance, not your own. And you need to take yourself out of the center and quit pretending that it is your performance that mattered so much. Fall into the arms of Jesus. But maybe you're heavy laden in a different way. Not your sin, it's someone has done something to you. They've wronged you. You're suffering because of someone else. It's not like there's a cloud over your head. It's like there's Hurricane Katrina over your head. Say, how can I rest in Jesus? Because if I relax at all, these raging waters will sweep me away. The wind will pick me up and throw me into like Morgan County or something. Like I can't do this. Jesus says, come to me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. There is rest here, even if it looks impossible to you. And of course, I don't understand the suffering that you're undergoing right now. But King Jesus says, guys, do you know what would happen to me less than a week after this triumphal entry? Do you know how people would wrong me how I would suffer injustice, how the people singing my praises would turn on me and literally stab me in the back? Yes, he knows. And he says, come to me. Like the song says, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. You can't fix yourself up before you come to Jesus. It doesn't work that way. If you're sick, you don't wait till you're better to go to the doctor. You go to the doctor for the healing. Except the doctor gives you medicine and Jesus gives you himself. He's better than any doctor you can find here. So maybe when we talk about King Jesus being gentle to all this morning, you need to confess your wrong views of Jesus. Because what I tend to do, and I guess you're a bit like me, is I project myself onto Jesus. That I get angry. I get easily frustrated. And I just think that he's the the slightly or way more spiritual version of me. I'm so wrong. He's not the way more spiritual version of me. He's entirely unlike me. I start to run out of mercy. His mercy oozes deeper every time he gets to give it to me. And we see Jesus as a little better version of ourselves, or a lot better version of ourselves, and we need to confess that is not who he is. He's gentle to all, to sinners, to sufferers. Come to him for rest. King Jesus is gentle to all. And what we'll see at the end of this passage is when you put the first two points together, you see that King Jesus is overall and majestic and ruling, there's nothing outside his domain, and at the same time, gentle to all, whoa, there's a king that's worthy of worship. And that brings you to the third point. King Jesus deserves praise from all. King Jesus deserves praise from all. Look back at Luke 19 with me, verse 37. To uh, 37 to 40 is what I'll read here. Here's what it says. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice 
and praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, as Jesus approaches, two praise songs closely mirror what's already been said about him. They're affirming this is the long-awaited king, both praise songs. So the first one is kind of a mirroring of Psalm 118, verse 26. Here's what it says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what's the only difference from Luke 19, from Psalm 118? Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 19, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Light bulb moment, not just he, he's the king over all, and he deserves your praise. And what's the basis for this praise? His name and his mighty works. Who he is and what he's done. If you'll listen carefully, you'll hear the songs we sing at Parkside emphasize that heavily. Who is God? What has he done? That's the basis for all of our praise. That should be the basis of your prayer life. I'm going to praise God for who he is. I'm going to praise him for what he's done. And it's so easy for us to treat God like a, a genie in a bottle, that our prayer life is like this long grocery list of all these things we need to make sure we pick up, and we need God to give us some of it, and we lose sight of worship-based prayer, praising God for who he is, what he's done. Maybe that's a foreign concept to you, praying in this way that's not all about what I can get. I would simply invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock, where we'll model that and help you to see what that looks like. It will totally change your prayer life when your worship is based on who God is and what he's done. The second song in Luke 19 is actually an echo of what was said about Jesus at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Luke 2, verses 13 and 14, we read, And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God on, in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You hear that echo there? In the triumphal entry, there's a declaration. There's crying out for peace in heaven. But his birth declares peace on earth. So it's a slight twist, but there's an echo of that same song being sung. So what does it mean? At his birth, he was bringing peace down to earth. But as he approaches Jerusalem to go to the cross... He's making peace with heaven for our sins. So you think about this differently. He, come, he comes to earth. He brings peace with him. He's doing miracles, healing, bringing peace here. But as he approaches Jerusalem, he knows there's an ultimate and a greater peace to be made. That he has lived the perfect life that none of us lived and is about to die the death that all of us deserve so that peace with God can be made on behalf of our sins so that you, every single one of you here, can have a restored relationship with God. Man, I wonder if you have not had that light bulb moment in your life. Oh, I know the religious things, I know some of the verses, I could tell you about Jesus, but I'm just now seeing, yes, I must trust in his death 
on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins so that Luke 19, there can be peace in heaven by the blood of the Lamb. That's good news this Palm Sunday. And if you haven't believed that, just think about how glorious this would be that you trust Jesus as your Savior today and next Sunday, the first time you walk into the church truly as a Christian would be on Resurrection Sunday Easter. Wouldn't that be a glorious thing? Man, if you're thinking about it, don't wait any longer. You're not guaranteed next Sunday. You're not guaranteed this afternoon. But man, if you do get next Sunday, it'd be an incredible way to come into the church. Absolutely incredible. But building on that, these Pharisees don't like what's being said. They don't like it. Jesus, too much of a ruckus. Tell them to knock it off. Like scolding an elementary class. Like, knock it off, guys. We're trying to do stuff here. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't get it. Notice, what do the Pharisees call him? Teacher. Not king. Not Lord. Teacher. They reduce him to a teacher. So of all the errors about Jesus throughout history, it seems the longer we go along, the more nothing changes. People still want to reduce him to just being a great teacher. And he says, no, 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 you've totally missed it. If you listen to Jesus' words, the one thing he doesn't let you do is say, I'm a good teacher. Stones don't cry out for teachers. They cry out for the Lord. And C.S. Lewis had a kind of a famous line. He says, look, you got three options if you listen to Jesus. He says, you could say that he's a liar. He's made up this stuff about who he is and he was lying to you. That's one option. Second option, you could say he's a lunatic. You could say he lost his mind. He didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't try to mislead you. He just did because he was crazy. Or you could say he did know what he was talking about and he was telling the truth and he's the Lord of all. But to reduce him to just being a good teacher that I can obey when I feel like it and I don't necessarily have to give my entire life to is not an option that Jesus gives you. He's Lord over all. Isaiah 55 says that the, the mountains and the hills will break into singing. That the trees, the trees, of all things will clap their hands. Psalm 114 says that when he's there, the mountains leap. Imagine if you've ever been to a mountain or you've seen the picture, the mountain jumping up. That's how they respond to Jesus because he is the Lord. You know, I, I don't have a rock here, but if I did, I could set it in my hand and just tell you, there's nothing more dead than a rock. There's nothing more lifeless than a rock, nothing more reserved than a rock. And even the rocks will cry out. So like, don't take this the wrong way. I don't particularly care what your personality is. Even the rocks cry out, I'm not the churchy type. Jesus is Lord, your life cries out in praise. Well, I'm kind of reserved, I'm not the, you know, hands up, hands down, I'm not the dance in the aisle guy, I'm not, I, Leave all that behind when you see Jesus for who he really is. Praise always flows forth. Always. I heard about somebody this week that uh, was getting a tattoo that said, don't let the rocks. It's an ongoing reminder. 
in my life, I need to have a life that is ongoing and reflecting King Jesus and crying out in praise so that on behalf of my wife, the rocks won't have to cry out. I'm not telling you you have to get that tattoo, but it's not a bad idea to write it down somewhere that you won't forget. Don't let the rocks cry out. See him for who he is and let your life of praise reflect it. And yes, singing is part of that, right? But it's a kind of a fraction of it, to be honest. A whole life that everything God has entrusted to you cries out in praise to him. He's king over all, so you need to reflect on where you're withholding from him. He's gentle to all, so we confess our wrong view of him and where I'm fearful to come to him thinking there won't be mercy for me. Friends, this morning, hear me on this. We'll close here. Your single greatest need, you just thought of something, your single greatest need is to see Jesus for who he really is. Come to him this morning and let your life cry out in praise to King Jesus. Let's pray.